Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to the 11th installment in our Star Trek movie review series. Today, we are reviewing Star Trek. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Brad. For seven whole years, there had not been a Star Trek film. Wow, that's a great silence over about, uh, what, two decades? How long have there been Star Trek films? Since 79? Since 1979, the very first film. It's hard to believe because they had a fairly regular pattern. Every two years, you could depend on a brand new Star Trek film hitting theaters. But as we discussed in our previous review of Star Trek Nemesis, if you haven't yet listened to that episode, make sure to go back and listen to that And of course, go back and listen to all of our previous reviews for all of the other Star Trek films. But as we said in that one, not many people turned out to even see that movie. It did the lowest at the box office, which signifies, well, not very many people saw it. Critically, it wasn't well received. Audiences thought it was pretty good or just fine, but it wasn't enough for Paramount to say, okay, we're going to give you more money to do another film for 2004. It just didn't happen. Also, at the same time, the television series Star Trek Enterprise was into, I don't I don't know how many seasons it had, but it was canceled. It was not well received. People just really weren't into Star Trek. At this point, Star Wars was in the cultural zeitgeist big time with the prequel trilogy. I remember this was around the time Attack of the Clones came out. That was a huge deal. And then just a couple years later, Revenge of the Sith. Pretty hard to compete with that for that uh, sci-fi star type based adventure. It really was difficult for them to justify going head to head with the juggernaut, which was Star Wars. But when they did decide all these years later, let's do another Star Trek film, they almost did it out of necessity. Because right after Star Trek Nemesis, uh, the franchise's executive producer, Rick Berman, and screenwriter Eric Jenderson began developing a new film entitled Star Trek The Beginning. And it was to revolve around a new set of characters led by Kirk's ancestor, Tiberius Chase. And it was going to be set during the Earth-Romulan War after the events of the TV show Enterprise, but before the events of the original series. Clearly, none of that came to fruition. But Gail, Sounds intriguing to me, though. It does sound really intriguing. I bet it would have made a pretty good film or maybe even a good TV series. Yeah. Gail Berman, the president of Paramount, wanted to develop a new Trek film because they would lose the rights within 18 months since they had separated from CBS. But CBS still retained the rights to the Star Trek television series. That's why... We saw when we just watched this movie, it shed it was from Paramount, but these new Star Trek shows like Star Trek Picard will be produced by CBS. Mm. They don't have any affiliation technically with each other. So Gail Berman, she asked the writers of Mission Impossible 3 to develop a new script. And of course, J.J. Abrams had directed Mission Impossible 3. They let him read the script. And he said he did have general knowledge of the original TV series and movies. He wasn't a hardcore Trekkie, but he realized that he would be, and this is a quote, 
he would be so agonizingly envious of whoever stepped in and directed this movie. Hmm. He had that much faith this was going to be an incredible film. And he also felt him and the crew could please, like I said, the Trekkies and also newcomers to the series. And so the story that they decided to create was partially a prequel, but partially a reimagining. And it's interesting because as far back as Star Trek IV, they were considering doing a prequel. Because I remember they weren't originally going to get William Shatner for Star Trek IV. So they said, okay, let's just recast him as a younger Kirk mm-hmm. and a younger Spock. And it'll be about McCoy telling how they all met at Starfleet Academy. And we kind of have that here. It is very much a prequel in a certain mm-hmm. sense, but it has a really unique twist that we're not going to give away just yet that really does set it apart in the Star Trek films. So when it did come time to release the film, they did go on a pretty large marketing campaign because at this point in time, especially by 2009, Star Trek had lost relevance, not to mention they didn't have to worry about competing with Star Wars anymore, which ended with episode three, which we thought was going to be done forever. Right. It's not true. Never say never. Never say never. We thought it was going to be done in 2006. But as I said, Star Trek wasn't in the cultural zeitgeist and favor had soured due to the Enterprise TV series being canceled. Mm -hmm. And as we just mentioned, barely anyone saw the previous film seven years prior. It was written by Roberto Orsi, who has written Transformers, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and Alex Kurtzman, who has done the exact same movies. They are a writing duo. And the score was done by not Jerry Goldsmith this time, Michael Giacchino, who has done tons of Pixar films, Disney, Marvel. He's really done it all. He is a prolific, well-renowned composer. And he did actually win the Oscar for his score of the Pixar film Up. And he was nominated for a score in Ratatouille. And I really do love Ratatouille and that score. All those names have the making of a great combination, a great movie. They really do. And especially at this time, J.J. Abrams was known. He, I believe, Super 8 had come out by then. That was a great period piece. And some other films he had done, Cloverfield. So coming on to do Star Trek made sense for to choose J.J. Abrams. It was released May 8th, 2009, and that's a change from the usual winter holiday release Mm -hmm. dates. They usually released it between Thanksgiving and Christmas. This time they felt, let's make this a big summer blockbuster, and boy, did it pay off. It came in at number one at the box office with an incredibly high opening weekend of $75 million. Wow. That was good timing. That really was, considering... Star Trek could have never even dreamed of having an opening that no, big. No, I think and that just, it looks like the weight paid off, the timing paid off, and people were hungry again. Oh, they absolutely were. And they surprisingly in May, I think they did it right before the real summer rush because it didn't, right. nothing, nothing else was really opening that weekend. Um, the other movies that were open were X-Men, Origins, Wolverine, Ghosts of Girlfriends Past, Obsessed, and Seventeen again. Uh, no real competition That's there. great timing. I really think that was smart on their part. So it, it did have the biggest budget of any Star Trek film. Paramount was always incredibly stingy with Star Trek, 
probably for good reason because it was a little risky whether it would pay off. It usually always financially paid off, but nothing incredible. This time they gave them a massive budget of $150 million. Like I said, Star Trek never had anywhere near that budget. Do you think it was because they needed to, uh, they knew they needed to really up the game in graphics and everything because of all that Star Wars had been able to accomplish? I mean, would that be part of it? I really think you're exactly right because Star Wars always had a really large budget, especially the later films. And I'm sure Paramount was thinking we need to get the proper talent, the visual effects, the right. writers, directors. Paramount was giving it their all. They said, we're going to go big yeah. or go home. Right. Yeah. Well, Star Wars really, I think, had set a standard. If you were going to be in the in the Star uh, Trek, Star Wars genre, you really had to get your game up or don't go at all. It absolutely had. And just science fiction in general, more CGI was being used than ever before. They weren't using models like mm -hmm. they used to, which is kind of funny because some models are coming back in style. But <laughs> everything comes back. <laughs> it is, but they're able to blend it so well with CGI. It looks incredible. That's amazing. Domestically, I mean, as I've said, Star Trek could have never even dreamed of these numbers. Domestically, it grossed $257.7 million. Wow. Foreign, $127.9 million for a worldwide total of $385.6 million. Obviously, this is the highest grossing Far in the away. series. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. And the only other film that comes close to this, once you adjust for inflation, would be the very first film with $295 million domestically. Wow. So currently on IMDb, the film holds a 7.9. Extremely high Extremely score. Extremely high, you bet. Uh, compared to the previous film, which was a 6.4, this is the highest critically acclaimed of all the Star Trek films at a Rotten Tomatoes rating of a, a resounding endorsement of 94%. That's a great endorsement from them. Especially compared to last time at 37%. Right. <laughs> Couldn't get any greater. Yeah, quite the disparity. And especially Metascore 82, which doesn't happen often, and compared to the last film of 51 audiences gave it an a i believe the highest uh, cinema score there is last time audiences gave the film an a minus which <laughs> there's really not much difference between that and uh, that makes sense to me so believe it or not this film did make it to the oscars big time actually this film was nominated for four academy awards very deserving including best visual effects very deserving obviously best sound editing best yes. sound mixing and it did win actually for best makeup wow that's great so in total the star trek franchise to this point had received 14 oscar nominations i'm a little surprised it didn't get a nomination at least for the score i thought the score was excellent yeah that is surprising uh michael giancina wasn't uh nominated at all for that score i agree with that as well but it's, it's kind of surprising to think that this is the 11th film and whether we've really endorsed the previous films or not, you'll have to listen to those previous episodes. But nevertheless, it's very impressive to say that this 25-ish year, almost 30-year-old series with 11 films has received um, more Oscar nominations than there are films. 14 Oscar nominations is very impressive. Very impressive. 
Listeners, we are going to get into spoiler territory for our review of Star Trek. If you have yet to see J.J. Abrams' film, don't forget to click pause right now so you don't have anything spoiled for you. Go ahead and watch the film. Come back and we'll be ready to talk about it. And before I jump into the plot here, don't forget to click subscribe if you haven't already. And also don't forget to subscribe through Facebook and Twitter or even through your email. That's a great way to follow us. And all of that is found in the link in the description below. And just a great way is just to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you find your podcasts. And if you do want to help support us financially, head on over to our Patreon page where we have fantastic bonus content that is yours to keep, all starting at the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee, movie reviews, commentaries, our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, Q&As. It's all over there. It really does help us keep the lights on and give you a far better experience here at Silver Screen Guide. 25 years before the birth of James Tiberius Kirk, his father, George Kirk, played by Chris Hemsworth, is made captain of the USS Kelvin, when a massive Romulan mining vessel comes out of what appears to be a huge thunderstorm in space. Without thought, the Romulans attempt to destroy the USS Kelvin, but not before Kirk's wife, Winona, played by Jennifer Morrison, escapes and delivers their son. But her husband sacrifices his life so the survivors may escape unhindered. Now that Kirk is a grown man, played by Chris Pine, he has no real ambition in life except to bed women and win bar brawls. That is, until he accepts the challenge of Captain Pike, played by Bruce Greenwood, that he could become a captain in a mere four years. Kirk tells him he'll do it in three. Flashing three years later, Kirk is about to graduate from Starfleet Academy, but he can't leave without winning the Kobayashi Maru test, an unwinnable simulation that is meant to teach acceptance of fear, not victory. He's hauled before a Starfleet tribunal, I couldn't help but notice, led by Tyler Perry, very unusual choice. Of the Medea fame, where he faces his accuser and creator of the test, none other than Spock, played by Zachary Quinto. But before they can reach a decision, a major distress call is received from the planet Vulcan, Spock's homeworld. Due to Kirk being on academic probation, he's not allowed to run to the rescue, but he is cleverly aided by his friend Bones, a.k.a. Dr. McCoy, played by Carl Urban. Earlier, the two had met while joining Starfleet. Also on board is Uhura, played by Zoe Saldana, whom Kirk had met three years ago the night he bar-brawled and met Captain Pike. As they travel to Vulcan, Kirk remembers the circumstances of his father's death sound all too familiar to those occurring on Vulcan. Captain Pike persuades him, Sulu, played by Joe Chan, and an engineer to blow up the massive drill connected to the same Romulan vessel that murdered Kirk's dad. This drill is preventing their ability to beam and is tunneling to the core of Vulcan. The captain of the Romulan vessel, Nero, played by, I had no idea who it was. I just, I had no idea. Eric Bana. Blows my mind. Me too. Wow, he was, he was incognito there. It didn't sound like him. It didn't yeah. look like him. Just unusual. I couldn't ever figure it out I until Eric. I looked it up. Continuing the Roman naming scheme. Has Pike board his ship to parlay, except it's a trap. He captures and tortures Pike for the information how to destroy Starfleet. Kirk and Sulu succeed in destroying the drill, but it's too late. Nero orders a drop of red matter to be dropped to the planet's core in order to create a black hole to entirely eradicate Vulcan. Spock, 
Realizing Nero's plan, beams onto the planet's surface where he rescues his father, Sarek, played by Ben Cross, and his mother, Amanda Grayson, played by Winona Ryder. Expecting Chekhov's, played by Anton Yelchin, skill to beam moving objects to be enough to save them, except right at the moment of beaming, his mother falls to her death into the planet. Back on the ship, Kirk tells Spock, who is now captain, what to do, which prompts Spock to eject Kirk to the surface of the closest planet. He's nearly eaten alive by space monsters when he is rescued by an old Spock, played by Leonard Nimoy. See, 129 years into the future, a star threatens to go supernova, aka an explosion that would wipe out many lives in the galaxy, one of which is the entire planet Romulus. Ambassador Spock promises to save the Romulans by using the red matter substance to create a black hole for the star to go into. But the unthinkable happens, and the planet goes supernova before their calculation is predicted, which causes the entire planet Romulus to be wiped out. The only surviving Romulans are those aboard Nero's mining vessel. Spock still must escape the supernova, so he launches the red matter. Both Spock and Nero go into it, which puts Nero directly in the path of the USS Kelvin, which began the film, but Spock doesn't come out until 25 years later, although no time has passed for him. He is captured by Nero, who holds him personally responsible for the death of his people, planet, and mainly his wife and child. So he exiles him to the ice planet, where he must helplessly watch his planet Vulcan entirely consumed. He explains to Kirk this has created an entirely new timeline. All the events of the previous Star Trek films have been altered. For now, they have to find a way off the ice planet. They travel to the nearest Starfleet outpost, where they meet Scotty, played by Simon Pegg. Spock teaches him the formula Scotty has yet to figure out, that of transwarp beam, which Kirk and Scotty use to board the Enterprise while in warp travel. Old Spock tells Kirk he must show the young Spock to be emotionally unfit in order for Kirk to become the captain of the Enterprise. He succeeds. But two heads are better than one, and Nero is heading for Earth to now not only destroy Starfleet, but also to destroy the planet. Spock and Kirk team up, they, board, they beam aboard Nero's ship where Kirk rescues Pike and Spock takes the older Spock's ship, which contains the red matter. This prompts Nero to race after him, abandoning his destruction of Earth. Kirk and Pike are beamed aboard the Enterprise, but in a no-win game of chicken, Spock races directly toward Nero in order for the red matter to ignite and Nero to be consumed in a black hole. Thankfully, at the last minute, Spock is beamed aboard the Enterprise where Kirk offers Nero escape, which he vehemently refuses as he perishes. Back on Earth, Pike is promoted to Rear Admiral. Spock meets his older self, who has decided to stay in the past to help correct the events of the future. Spock becomes First Officer of the Enterprise, and Kirk officially is promoted to Captain as Nimoy gives the space the Final Frontier monologue while the Enterprise hits warp speed as credits roll. So as you can tell by the plot summary, it's a really incredible, well-thought-out plot, but one that is quite dense. Yes, it is dense. It's uh, It's got some complication to it that takes a lot of concentration. It really does, which kind of caught me off guard considering the previous Star Trek films are so easy to digest. Exactly. You can, you can oftentimes 
doze during the second act <laughs> and have no problem following the rest of the film. <laughs> That's so true. Not this time. Not this time. If you do doze during the second act or pretty much anywhere in the film, there will be some sort of confusion because this, like I said, this plot is so dense and tightly packed. Everything ties in together, especially this is the, I believe, the third Star Trek film to use time travel. Mm -hmm. The other ones were Star Trek IV The Voyage Home and Star Trek First Contact. But this one uses it in a way that has actual stakes that can't be reversed. Because right. in the previous two films, they saved the day, they reversed it. All's well that ends well. This one, Kirk's dad, it opens with... Uh, Kirk's dad, which surprised me. I didn't remember that. I didn't either, and it had been a, quite a while. I'd only seen the film once, and it had been quite a while uh, since we'd seen it. And uh, the, I just had forgotten about that. Well, it was a great opening. Absolutely. It is a really emotionally impactful opening where we learn that Kirk's dad, right towards his death, becomes captain and gives his life. And at the same time, he's listening to his wife give birth and his son being That's born so emotional it really is and at the at the moment that is when kirk is born and they name him james tiberius kirk yeah it's wow. it's a fantastic opening it pulls you in emotionally the action is just incredible and the visual effects are bar none we've ne i know when they started you know going with six and generations and first mm -hmm. contact it just kept getting better and better this is light years ahead. Light years ahead. And for a person like myself, who's an original Trek fan from the original days of the original TV series and all the way through, you, you just all of those, you're, you're, you're just feeling all of this uh, emotion of, wow, that's that's the story. That's where that name came from. That's just all this different. And that happens several places throughout the movie. It really did. I loved the callbacks, how they really nicely weaved in <laughs> what original fans would know of the movies. Especially, yeah. I thought it was cool how well they incorporated the Kobayashi Maru. Absolutely masterful the way they did that. Every Trek fan has always wondered about that episode of, you know, they just allude to the fact that, you know, Kirk was the only guy that ever beat it, you know. So this was great to see that uh, unfolded. And it was cool because this is exactly how Kirk and Spock meet is because Spock is the designer of the yeah, Kobayashi Maru. And you could see they're immediately enemies. Kirk <laughs> calls him a pointy eared fill in the blank. You, you can guess what he would call him. And uh, I do love how they introduce each of the characters. It feels very unique. Mm -hmm. I like how we learn how Bones gets his nickname. He says- Great. Yeah. That was a great reveal. It was. He was very grumpy and kind of bitter about, he's like, my wife divorced me. She took all my stuff. All I'm left with is my Bones. Yeah. And let's just say it here. Carl Urban nailed that character. He I did. Mean, he nailed that character. He made me believe he was a young divorced Kelly. And I remember when we first watched this movie, I don't know if I had ever seen the original films, but I remember you specifically saying, wow, he nailed mm -hmm. DeForest Kelly's portrayal of Dr. McCoy. And he absolutely sounds like him. He even looks like he could be a young version of him. Mm -hmm. And I don't have any complaints with this new cast. None at all. They, they, they all fit their roles so well. They really do. And the other thing I appreciated was they didn't do a complete imitation because that wouldn't make sense. They're, right. they're not as 
they're they're not friends to begin with. Right. They're all meeting for the first time. And so tensions are running high in this really dramatic situation, but you can see how the seeds are planted for them to become a tightly knit crew. And I think I, I love all of the pair ups throughout right. the film. Yeah. That's, that's very, it's excellent writing. It really is. The one thing that I, that you and I both thought was just weird though, and hard to wrap our heads around was seeing Spock and Uhura kiss and be romantically involved. Yeah. That kind of blew my mind actually. Uh, it, it actually began when, for me, when Captain Kirk or it, it, just the young Kirk, you know, was so interested in her yeah. meeting her at the bar, you know, and it just, I'm like, what? This is it's kind of different. You know, the TV series never went there. Nobody else ever alluded to that. Or if it did, I was so young. I didn't. I didn't read it between the lines back then, but it was, uh, that was kind of weird. And it was kind of neat to see how the movie kept me guessing who were they going to meet next and how are they going to meet them? I was thinking, when are they going to meet yeah. Chekhov? Right, right. When, when are they going to meet breathe? Sulu or Scotty? And mm -hmm. I really liked how they incorporated all of it. It's just kind of funny to watch because even with the original TV series, you just know their crew. They've just, you mm -hmm. just think they've always been together. But that's definitely not the case. And I think that the writers and Abrams went incredibly bold with this film by really doing some shocking things such as completely destroying the planet Vulcan. Yeah, that took me by shock because uh, and then at the end, of course, you learn that they're going to go kind of restart a new type Vulcan colony. But because uh, you're thinking, well, they can't do that because there was always a Vulcan planet that they visited. But And what's even more shocking and I absolutely love the reveal is when you see Leonard Nimoy for the first time. And you're thinking, who is this guy helping Kirk on the ice planet? It's, it's Spock. That was brilliant. I mean, every original Trek fan is is probably given a standing ovation at that point going, yes. I mean, you just... There's the ultimate sentimental feeling to see Spock, an old man, given a part of this. You know, Leonard Nimoy is just such a classic and classy and classic actor that, you know, you just you can't imagine Star Trek without Leonard Nimoy in many ways. And it was just so cool to see him back like that. And I didn't expect to see any of the original cast members, especially considering. I didn't either. Yeah. And considering, you know, not just because it had been many, many years since they had been in a film, but this is a prequel. Yeah, it's just, it's brilliant. I just loved it. And it was really neat how they incorporated, they, they really tied it all together where Spock is blamed for destroying, for the, well, the destruction of the planet uh, Romulus. Oh, right. And it's interesting because that was a real focal point of Star Trek Nemesis, the previous film, was we finally got to see the home world of Romulus, we got to see the Senate right. and really see the inner workings of all of that. And they did bring the Romulans back. I'm glad they didn't bring the Klingons back as the villain because I think we've had enough of that. It's a little tired script, yeah. So using the Romulans instead as villains, I think was the right choice. I do too. I always felt, even through the days of the original series and everything, I always felt Romulans were a little underused. They definitely were always underused. And I, I can't quite speak to the TV series, but from what I understand, they're barely in it. And even in the movies, they were, I, in Star Trek V, you saw a Romulan ambassador for a bit of it. Didn't yeah. really make any sense, though. And the only thing you really thought they were famous for was their wine. 
<laughs> yeah. Over and over. Every Romulan ale. Romulan ale. Ale, not wine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How uh, I remember when Worf said Romulan ale should be illegal <laughs> and Data looks at him and says, it is. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. That's a funny line. I don't think they, they should have referenced Romulan ale in here just to. <laughs> it would have been kind of funny. That actually. would have been funny. But the one thing that really does set it apart is this doesn't look or feel, I would say, like any of the previous Star Trek films. This one is not going to have any reservations. It's going to go full force. It has incredible action. It's really intense. And that's one thing we did love about Star Trek Nemesis was the action in the right. film. Yeah. And it was exciting. And even some of the action first contact. So I do like how they kind of have a smart plot with the action and it's just not one or the other they balance them really well and where star trek can falter is when they try and get too smart with their plot and then they have no action i mean come on who wants to see a movie with no action and they have this amazing spaceship and exactly. all these planets and i think as you had mentioned earlier Star Wars had raised the bar at this point. Right. So audiences wanted an adventurous sci-fi film, but also one that had a good script. And that's exactly what we got. Mm -hmm. So I can't really say anything in this film disappointed me. I just was grinning from ear to ear. I was incredibly invested. And I thought, honestly, for the first time, Star Trek hit all of the check marks. They did. They did for me anyway. It did for me too. And even though I loved Star Trek Nemesis and I did say it was my favorite of all the films, this one I think really pushed the bar even higher. Uh, it was, the action was incredible. And so were those visual effects. It just kept you on the edge of your seat. Yeah. I, 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 I loved Nemesis, obviously, from our last review. Uh, and I, and I still do, but I, I feel like they're, uh, they're just in two different leagues. You know, one's minor league, one's major league is the way it feels like, you know, so it's hard to compare them head to head. I mean, they did the best of what they had with the budget they had and this, the uh, technology that they had in Nemesis. But seven years later, they really, Paramount really took this to the top. They absolutely did. And I, I think they've really bridged the gap well, especially by incorporating Leonard Nimoy. And I am grateful they chose Nimoy instead of um William Shatner. Yeah, I am too. Because we already kind of saw that in Star Trek Generations right, when right. they brought William Shatner back and teamed up with Captain Picard, which mm -hmm. was kind of cool, but it was also incredibly cheesy. Yeah. And there's really nothing meaningful with it. Right. And ultimately it, I think it left both of us with a bad taste in our mm -hmm. mouth how they really handled the whole Captain Kirk situation. But I gotta say Something I would love to see in the future is we've got, well, Leonard Nimoy has passed away since then, mm -hmm. but they could bring back a different original cast member with this new cast. And then I would love to see someone from the next generation. I'd love to see them all come together somehow. I don't know how they could do it, but with these writers, they could figure it out. They could figure it out. Yeah. Like a Mr. Sulu or somebody like that, George Takai, you know, bring yeah. him back or something. One of them. I think that would be a really good idea because I, I do want to see these cast members back. I'd love to see them those, all working together. Those cameo type appearances really just add a, to me, that just adds, a, the, as well as they did it here, it just adds a whole 
credibility to it. It connects the thread through the years. And the other thing that I think was really kind of shocking and mind altering to a lot of Trek fans is it completely acknowledged the all of the previous films, but then you learn 130 years into the future, there's this cataclysmic event which causes Spock to go back in time, which causes these Romulans to go back in time. It's kind of the domino effect. The Romulans kill Kirk's father, which originally never happened. Right. Because Kirk said, did I know my father? And he said, very well. He saw you graduate and become the captain of the Enterprise. It was one of his most proudest days. Right. And that's really shocking to learn. I kind learn. of forgot about that. That's right. Yeah, that's really shocking to learn because in this time, because of them going back in time, uh, Kirk's father died and he never knew him. Mm -hmm. So then Trek fans realize that this is not going to lead into the motion picture. It's not going to lead into the Wrath of Khan. Everything's changed now. It's an alternate timeline. It is an alternate timeline, which is really fascinating. One thing I probably should have brought up at the beginning of the podcast, but I'll say it now because it just came to me. I think they were paying homage to start the very first film, Star Trek, the motion picture in the beginning of this movie, because the motion picture opens up with this crazy space cloud um, and they're encountering it and trying to fight it off. And what does this open with this small starship encountering this just ginormous Goliath type star vessel that they have to fight off? I, I could see, I think they're trying to give some homages and parallels there mm -hmm. to that kind of space cloud V'ger we saw from the mm -hmm. very first Good film. Point. Yeah. The only negative I think with this movie that they may have been able to improve upon, I don't know. I, I think if you really do pay attention, you will be able to follow this plot, even though it is just jam packed, dense. And I would say because we have watched all the Star Trek films, I was probably able to understand some things better than someone who had never seen those films before. Right. But one thing is the plot can get a little convoluted and it can get almost a bit too dense at times, especially considering, like I said, the other films are fairly leisurely and don't take a lot of brain power. This one, your brain has to be firing on all cylinders to really track with everything that's going on. That's a good, that's a good analogy. It's a good point. Um, you had helped, you know, you were sharper than I was, you know, in following it. You helped me at a couple of points where I got lost, uh, just a little bit in some of the, the going back in time sequences, but, uh, you, you followed it really well. I have to say this makes me incredibly excited to see what they do next time with the next Star Trek film. Me too. Can't wait. Brad, what is your rating and recommendation for Star Trek? Well, you know, I, I feel like I have to give two different uh, qualifiers here because there, there is that, you know, there's that scoring that you give to movies based on their just their their intrinsic value and worth. And then there's also that scoring that you give based on the sentimentality of it all. And as you've heard me throughout many of these reviews, I tend to rate them a little higher than you do based on my sentimentality of the love for Star Trek. Um, but I, 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 in, in loving Nemesis the way I did and giving it the nine that I did, I got to give this in a 10. I'm just not that picky. I'm, I'm just, I mean, I just think, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to pick it apart that hard to give it below a 10. The entertainment value of this film for me was huge. I loved it. 
10, highly recommend. Must see. Star Trek is one of the greatest series comebacks I have ever seen. They nicely incorporate jaw-dropping action while retaining a smart plot the Trek films are mostly known for. The cast does well and not imitating their predecessors, but showing they, how they were before they all became close friends. Using time travel for about the third time works and is done the best in this film because there are actual stakes such as the death of an entire planet, Spock coming back in time and staying there, and a true alteration of future events. I really love how they made this a prequel that references the original films, but also changes the history we know. The writers and directors should be applauded for reviving the franchise in a way that's not a blatant cash grab, but a seriously investing science fiction film. Plus, they managed to pull off the unthinkable, making the 11th film in a series the best one. Yes, listeners, this is my favorite Star Trek film, even better than the last one because of how well they brought the familiar world of Star Trek while breathing fresh life into it. And I find this plot to be the best of them all. Star Trek receives 8 stars out of 10 with a strong recommend. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us on our review of Star Trek. Here's the question after the show. Is this your favorite Star Trek film and why is it better or worse than the others? Maybe this is not your favorite Star Trek film. We want to know in the comments below what you think of this film. Also, once again, don't forget to check out uh, all the links in the description below, we've made it very easy for you to find our Facebook, our Twitter page, even for you to go back and to listen to uh, other reviews. Rambo Last Blood is coming to theaters very soon, and we're excited to revisit Rambo on the big screen. Yes, I can't wait. That's going to be awesome. So don't forget to listen. We have reviewed all four of the Rambo films, including the animated television series. All of those reviews are on the website and they're very easy to find they're all linked to in the description below and of course if you haven't heard our previous reviews of the star trek films that link is in the description below and alan is alan and i are coming back very soon we're going to be reviewing pet cemetery men in black international of course we're going to be reviewing rambo last blood and we will be reviewing the rest of the m night Shyamalan films and you also have our halloween special and our christmas special to look forward to all of those links, once again, are in the description below. And if you haven't already clicked subscribe, don't forget to do that. And also don't forget to share this with your friends and family. We love talking about movies and we love talking about them with you. Brad, thanks for joining me. Hey, Corbin, it has been great fun. Thank you for having me. Next week, we will see you listeners with Star Trek Into Darkness.